Good morning. Uh, so glad that you could uh, tune in, take time uh, to stop and worship with your family wherever you are uh, this morning as we continue to worship uh, virtually in this way. But let me pray for us and then we're going to be in Psalm 73 together this morning. But let me pray for us first and then we'll jump in and look at that text together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship together. Uh, Even if it's as we're scattered, uh, we thank you that we're still your church, that your church is not uh, this building or this place, but it's uh, the people that have been unified in you and what you've done for us in Jesus. And so we pray that as we worship, uh, that you would lead and guide our time, that you would be the one that is teaching and showing us, whether it's in our homes and with our families or wherever we may be this morning. We thank you that you are with us, that you are teaching us, leading us, guiding us in all things pray that as we spend time in your word, that you would be the one who teaches us. You would be the one who leads us in all things. Uh, We pray all of this in Jesus name. Amen. And so uh, as we think this morning, uh, I want us to just think about uh, how so much of our lives, the the day to day in which we operate and the ways that we operate uh, can be overtaken by the immediate, by the pressing things that we see right in front of us. Because what happens so often is the things that are that are we feel pressing in or we feel uh, that we need to deal with can overtake. They can overshadow all things. And it makes sense if you think about it. When there's things that we need to deal with that are that are very urgent, that are right here in front of me, sometimes they present themselves right in front of my face and I begin to focus on what's right here in front of me. But in doing so, it can obscure the long view of the other things that I need to be doing and thinking about. And so what can happen is we become so emotionally invested, emotionally drained by the immediate that all of a sudden it begins to uh, overtake and overshadow the way that we operate to where we're just constantly focused on the things that are right in front of us. And we're we're not seeing the rest of what we need to see. Our perspective becomes skewed in some ways. And so it's important that we uh, can recognize and see this when this begins to happen, because our world is ever changing and our experience is changing from day to day. And there's things coming at us constantly that we're not in control of. And if they present themselves right in front of us and we try to focus on just that, it can become a roller coaster of motions. And it leads us to never stepping back and operating with true wisdom and discernment. And so God tells us the importance of having a long perspective. God calls us to consider the eternal and not just the immediate. The enemy of perspective can become when we're caught in the immediate, the point where the things right in front of us are continually driving our emotions and exhausting us. And it leads to struggle. It can lead to anxiety and it can lead to fear. It can lead to being overwhelmed with all sorts of negative emotions, and it can even begin to lead to doubt. We can start to doubt God's goodness in the midst of that. We can be so focused on circumstances and things that are right in front of us that we struggle to see the big picture of what God is doing in those times. And so when we lose our footing, so to speak, some days uh, the future is kind of a blur. And the immediate situation seems to be like all we can uh, focus on. And I think that's partly what we're feeling today, just in our time and the way things are right now with this virus and this future is uncertain. And we're not exactly sure what that's going to look like. 
And so what can happen is when we focus on that and we lose that perspective, doubt can give birth in our heart. We can begin to doubt the things that we believe and that we know, the things that God has told us and who he is and his goodness. And sometimes we can start to struggle in that. And so that brings me back to the Psalms and Psalm 73 that we're going to look at together this morning. We see a lot in the Psalms of of crying out to God, going before him, seeking him in, in the difficulties of life. Seeking him when the urgent becomes so overwhelming and we see the psalmist at different times cry out. And what we see, and we've talked about this the last few weeks, is it's very raw and it's very real. It's in the hardness of the time. And so there's confession and there's pleading and there's struggle. It's real life played out in the psalms. And today, as we look at Psalm 73, we're going to see very real wrestling with the immediate situation. That's caused the psalmist, and in this case it's Asaph that's writing this psalm in Psalm 73, to begin to doubt in light of what's being played out in front of him. And he's struggling with what he sees and with what other people are doing, and he cries out to God. And so as we look at this psalm and think about the struggles that arise from all that comes at us in the world and how it can begin to give birth to doubt I want to approach this this way very simply. Two things. I want us to consider first why we struggle. Why in the midst of all of this do we begin to struggle with this idea of doubt and the the way that that begins to give birth in us. So why do we struggle? And then secondly, I just want us to think about how do we begin to deal with it and how God uses it. Put those two really together. How do we begin to walk through those doubts? And we'll talk a little bit about what we shouldn't do. Some of the mistakes we make, but then how we begin to walk through that with God and the way he uses that. And so let's start with why it's such a struggle. And if you want to follow along with me, Psalm 73, we're going to look at verses one through three to begin with. And so Asaph writes, truly, God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so I want you to just notice how the psalm starts right off from the beginning. He confesses what he knows to be true about who God is and his goodness towards his people. Truly, God is good to Israel. And it begins with this confession, but then he begins to confess where he is and the way he's struggling. And he says, I have almost stumbled and my footing is suddenly unsure He says in verse two, and then he tells us why in verse three, I saw the prosperity of the wicked and I was envious of their arrogant. He says, I saw these people that were getting away with with uh, injustice and and, and struggle uh, in, in the struggles of life and they're taking advantage of people. And I saw this and I began to doubt really is what he's saying. I nearly stumbled and I became envious of those that are doing the exact opposite of what God calls us to do. And so sometimes when we see things right in front of our face and our emotions lead us uh, to begin to to uh, let the immediate overtake what we know to be true. And so we struggle. I, I see uh, the, the things that are happening in the world. And they frustrate me 
And so I begin to stumble and struggle. And that's what the psalmist is saying here right at the beginning. Sometimes we allow what we know to be true to be overshadowed by the truth, the circumstances. What we know to be true gets overshadowed by the circumstances of life. It's kind of like maybe you can relate to this. I certainly can. But at different times, uh, you think about how to exercise, how to be healthy, how to eat well, the things that that takes. Uh, You can read about all the best things to eat. You can know what you should do. You can know uh, you could read a bunch about uh, what's healthy proteins and how much fat to eat and all these things and go, this is what I'm going to do. And this is the best way. This will make me the most healthy. It'll make me feel the best. And you can begin to do those things. And then you walk in to the kitchen. And there's coming out of the oven is a delicious dessert. And you begin to smell it and you begin to see it. And you know what is right and you know what is true and you know what is best in this situation. But suddenly that being right in front of you evokes powerful emotions. The smell and the look and oh, that looks really good. And so suddenly what you know to be true begins to take a backseat to what is vividly in front of you. And so here the psalmist says, I'm struggling because of what I see right in front of me, even though I know God is good. Even though I know this is true because of the circumstances I'm struggling in this moment. But then if you look at verse three and then following as he begins to talk about this uh, struggle that he's having, he says, I was envious of the arrogant. He begins to compare to what others are saying in their worldviews in light of the struggle that he sees. Now, here in particular, the psalmist is struggling with injustice, things that people are getting away with. And it's a common objection. It's one of the most common objections uh, when we come to struggling with our worldview and what we believe about who God is. People will say, if God is all powerful and God is all good, why does he let evil continue? Why is there so much injustice in the world? And the logic flows. If God could stop it, he would. And so they will present it that way. And so doubt presents I see this thing and I'm not sure how it fits with what I believe. And so I struggle and doubts begin to give rise. And doubts come when I suddenly see right in front of me the case of injustice, as the psalmist says, and it overwhelms him. The same could be said for us right now in the midst of a global pandemic and the things that we're seeing. How can God be good and all powerful and allow this to continue to happen? And so doubt arises, not because uh, we don't believe there's evidence for God, not because we're not trusting him, but because of the things that are right in front of us in those moments begin to more powerfully shape the way that we operate. I read this week, Tim Keller says it like this. Doubts come when what your mind knows becomes unreal to your heart because of experience. We let the experience of what's happening right in front of us overshadow what we know to be true about who God is. And so we can struggle because we're going to be bombarded with different situations in our lives where they're going to press in and they're going to seem more immediate than what we believe. So how do we deal with it? What do we do? Well, there's two things I want us to consider first on how not to deal with it, because I think they're very pervasive. 
And if we miss on either side, the kind of the two extremes, it can shoot us off into a trajectory that's very unhelpful when we think about how to deal with these things. And so the two ways I would I would say as we as we think about it is maybe one is the common wisdom of the day, maybe a more secular view. And the, the other way would be more the call it the skewed religious view. So if we start with the religious way of looking at it, maybe you've heard me talk about this before, if you've been around Coda for any amount of time. But we talk about how that the gospel, the good news of who God is. And what he's done for us in Jesus has two equal and opposite enemies, religion and irreligion. And and, and now you you may say, well, how is religion an enemy of the gospel? What I mean by religion is that we reverse the most foundational truth of what we believe about who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that he's done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we make our relationship with God built around the idea that based on my performance is what is the way God accepts me. Man made religion do A, B and C. And if you do them well enough, then maybe God will accept you. That's the opposite of what we believe. We can never do it. We've never can earn our way to God. And so Jesus has to come and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. But if we embrace that religious sort of thinking and we begin to misunderstand that it's not what God does for us, but it's what we do for him. When doubt arises in our life, we can really be shaken by it. What happens is is something like this. A good religious person doesn't doubt. They just believe. And what's behind that is a focus on me and what I do. I'm a good person and I don't doubt. So at the heart of it is that I'm acceptable to God by what I do. It's all about my righteousness or my virtue. And so what happens is we're believing that we deserve God's attention or or his blessing or uh, salvation based on my virtue, my not doubting, my being a good Christian that doesn't do those things. And so what happens is we've allowed religious type of thinking that is anti to the gospel Because it's not what you do, but what Jesus has done. And we let that begin to skew the way in which we operate. And it's so easy for us to slip into this type of thinking. I would wager that we do it uh, all the time. Probably daily. I'm acceptable to God because I'm a pretty good person. Those ideas start to creep in or I'm acceptable to God because I don't do what those people over there do. Or I'm good with God because I'm saved by grace. And we go, yes, that's right. But then if we stop and linger on it, we go, and God gave me his grace because I'm a pretty good person. And that's the deceitfulness of our heart that wants to make it all about us rather than what God has done. But when we operate that way and then we begin to struggle with doubt, it can be devastating because it cuts to the core of the way you are good with God. Or the way you're believing you're good with God. We push it uh, aside and we say, well, just believe. Don't ask questions. Don't uh, uh, dive in to address those doubts. Don't go near that at all because that's not what a good Christian does. And if I'm misbelieving, I'm believing this lie that I'm saved by how good I am, I'm going to have to push that aside. I'm going to struggle with that. And so that's one way, one end of the spectrum that we miss it. 
But then the other end of the spectrum, and I say it's kind of the thinking of our day in which we miss dealing with doubt and struggles in our life, is that we just say our feelings kind of rule over all else. Your feelings are the real you. Very common today in the way in which people think and operate. Right? That the, your feelings are the real you. There is nothing I can do about it. It's just the way I feel. I was just made this way. And what happens is our feelings can betray you in the moment. And it's a very arbitrary way to live. You'll always be shifting, uh, standing on shifting ground if, if you're operating on your feelings. If you let them be supreme. Go back to what I said just a second ago. I know what I should eat. I know what's best for me. But in that moment, my feelings are like, oh, I'd rather eat this. I know that's not true. I know that's not best. And if I believe the lie that my feelings are supreme over all else, it's going to cause all sort of problems. And the reason is simple. In our sinfulness, and we are all sinful, when we let our feelings rule, we become the center of the world. It's all turned inward and it's all about me and how I feel about it. And if you stop and think about this, that's going to be a disaster because feelings are tricky and they're deceptive. And it's never a good idea to operate on your feelings alone. When we do, we're operating oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes in our flesh, our sinful nature that makes it all about me and what I want, what I want, as opposed to loving God and loving people. And so we embrace either end of the spectrum. It causes all kinds of problems. But here in Psalm 73, there's a different way. It's a different way of looking at it. And what we see the psalmist, we see Asaph doing here is he begins to lay all of it before God. He confesses and he brings to the light the things that he's struggling and he's dealing with and he lays them before God. And he begins to say and confess and give birth to this of what he's struggling with. And I want you to even think for just a minute about the, the positive of dealing with doubt like this. Now, you may immediately go, what's good about doubt? Isn't doubt sin? Sin's ignoring God in the world he created or rebelling against God in the world he created. So, yes, it can give birth to that for sure. I think uh, the distinction is what you do with the doubt as it comes into your life and how you deal with it. Adam and Eve doubted God in the garden that he was good and he had their best in mind. When they presented with, you can make these decisions on your own, you don't need God. But what you see them doing is they don't bring it before God. They don't trust him with it. They don't bring it out into the light and wrestle with it. Instead, they follow their doubts and they choose to rebel and it gives birth to sin and it causes every problem that we can see. And so doubt certainly can cause issues. It certainly can lead to sin. When we're not responding in faith and we rely on our own emotions frequently, that's where we're going to end. And so I'm not in any way trying to lead you away from the certainty of faith and saying you should just embrace doubts and throw your faith up in the air. That's not what I'm saying. But this psalm here starts with the psalmist doubting and struggling. But then as you move through this psalm, you get to the end and you see a beautiful picture of his faith at the end in a way it's stronger and so it's that process of bringing those things into the light, allowing God to meet you in them and deal with them as you go that gets you to this end. And so look here at the whole of the psalm. 
It starts with this deep struggle and he confesses what he's struggling with. And then you get to the end and it's it's not about embracing uh, feelings. It's not pretending. It's not either one of those extremes, but it's bringing it out. Look at what happens in verse 16 and 17. And so the very beginning, he introduces it. Then he spends a good period here in four down to about 15 about the evilness of the people and the world. But then in verse 16, he says this. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned therein. He says, until I took it before the Lord and when I went and sought him in this. And I see that God is pursuing me and calling us to him. He meets us in the middle of this. In God has found all wisdom and truth. And so the psalmist says, I I laid it before him and I went to seek him in the midst of where I was struggling. There's nothing that we have to be afraid of, of talking to him, of bringing it before him. Of bringing it into the light because God is the ultimate reality. He is the truth. He is the way. And so bringing those things before him and wrestling with them. You see this all the way throughout scripture. As people are struggling with doubts. There's probably the most famous doubter in the Bible immediately comes to my mind. In fact, we often refer to him as doubting Thomas. One of Jesus' disciples, one of the twelve. And if you know the story, uh, Jesus appears to the disciples after the resurrection. It tells us in John chapter 20. And he comes to the disciples, but Thomas was not there with them. And so maybe you know the story, but when they relay to Thomas what had happened, he says this in John chapter 20. Unless I see his hands... And the mark of his nails and I place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. It's a pretty strong statement. Thomas has his doubts. He says, I don't see how resurrection is possible. I don't see how what you guys are saying could be true right now. I have my doubts about this. But then if you know the rest of the story at the end of John chapter 20, Jesus shows up again. It says eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. And he put out it and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus shows him his hands and his sides and he lets him touch them. And he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And then Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. And this is one of the strongest, if not the strongest claims of Jesus' deity and lordship recorded in the Bible. Thomas was very skeptical and he was unsure, yet Jesus meets him in the middle of it. And he brings him through it and he comes out on the other side with a faith that is solid. A faith that is professing in a way that is as strong or stronger than any that we see in the Gospels about who Jesus is. My Lord and my God. Now, right after this, Jesus does say, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It is good to have faith. It is good to trust in God and what he's told us. Jesus says it's a blessing For those that have not seen and believe. 
But there's an important distinction here. I want to make sure that we see Jesus is not saying and nor does he ever say just blindly believe. He meets Thomas and he walks him through his doubt and he comes out on the other side with this rock solid faith. And so the same thing happens here in this psalm. You get to the end of the psalm and the psalmist has come full circle and he comes to this beautiful confession and growth at the end of the time. And you see it in verse 26 and in verse 28 In verse 26, he says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or in verse 28, he says, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And it's a beautiful testimony of how God meets us in the middle. When we consider how to move forward, don't dismiss doubts and struggle either as uh, as collapsing your feelings to be supreme. Well, that's just how I feel or the other uh, extreme of, well, I'm a person of faith and a good Christian doesn't have doubts and make it all about you. No, but face those doubts and do so by bringing them before the Lord, seeking him in the midst of right where you are. You know, we talked about last week the importance of waiting on the Lord in those difficult times. God calls us to bring all things before him. Because as you do, and as you begin to seek God and you begin to love him with your entire being, which God calls us to. And you love God with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Don't ever buy into the lie that belief is opposed to reason. That you have to check your mind at the door. Or there's some honor in doing so that doesn't come from the Bible. It doesn't come from what Jesus taught. Never does he tell us to check your mind at the door and just believe. He's always meeting us in the middle of that, walking us through, showing us. Our faith is not against reason. You have a very well-reasoned faith. And yes, there is faith that is involved, but faith and reason don't have to be at odds. God is the God of all truth. And so seek him and wrestle through and begin to bring those things into the light. I actually love when my children ask hard questions, deep questions. I don't see that as a threat. I see that as seeking to love God with the whole of our being, including our minds. And so I, I love when I get the opportunity to pick one of my kids up from school. And my oldest has gotten into the habit of different times to say, hey, Dad, they were talking about this today. And he'll ask a very pointed question and we'll have some of our best conversations as we wrestle through those things together. How does this fit with who God is and what he's told us? But in doing so and wrestling through those things, it creates uh, it leads us to a deeper faith, a deeper understanding, knowing why we believe what we believe. And that's exactly what you see here as the psalmist considers where he's struggling in verse 17, when he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. See, when struggles come and doubts arise, there's an important step that we need to take in all that. We take it before God. And we begin to seek him with him as we lay it before him. We tell him and we confess to him and we we let him walk us through that. But then notice he says, I discerned their end. The things that were causing him doubt. 
the things that he was struggling, he took them all the way through to their logical conclusion. And so when you're struggling with doubts, take them all the way through. Begin to apply the same skepticism you're having with the things that seem out of sorts that you do with your doubts. Another way to say it, to doubt your doubts. C.S. Lewis used to talk about this, to begin to put the same view in which the two things that you're considering be just as skeptical about both. Begin to turn them over and look at the weaknesses and the strengths of both. And that's what he says here. I discerned their end. I took them all the way out to their logical conclusion, which, by the way, when you do this with anything, anything you believe, anything that you're wrestling with, any conversations you're having, the more you can look at and be critical of your own view will help you to see it more fully. The more charitable you can be with other people's thoughts and views, it will lead you to be more gracious And we should have no fear in doing that because God is the God of all truth. It's not going to lead us astray. He is the way and the truth and the life. And so we seek him and we begin to doubt our doubts. And so exactly what Asaph does here and he tells us, he lays it before the Lord and he doubts his doubts and he takes them all the way out. And so when we do that, we begin to see very clearly that we all No matter what you believe or where you fall in your world, you have faith based beliefs. It's a common misnomer today that people will say, well, I'm not a person of faith. I'm a person of science and I only believe in what I can see and what I can touch and what I can test. It's almost become its own religion today. I'm I'm a person of science. As a Christian, we should be people of science. Science is observing what we can see. It's not something we should be afraid of. But what I want you to understand is that every single person is living by faith based beliefs. Everyone. Even when you say things like there's no God or there's no life after death, that's not a scientific statement. It's not something that's been proven. That person is taking that on belief. And so that's where we enter in and we begin to doubt our doubts and we begin to take those to their logical end. And so we grow and we move forward by taking these things before the Lord and doubting our doubts. You know, I said earlier that the psalmist was struggling with the age old problem of if God is all good and powerful, then why is there injustice? God should do something about it. But if you doubt your doubts and you apply the same type of thinking to both sides of that. It can be a struggle, right? We see the evil in the world and the struggles that come with it. And we would be a fool to not say that that's a real concern. It's a struggle for anyone who believes in God, a God that is big enough to to fix this. Then why is he not putting an end to it? But if you doubt your doubts and you flip that, the other side of that is it's just as big of a problem, if not a bigger problem for people who don't believe in God. C.S. Lewis who became one of the greatest Christian apologists, was an atheist for much of his life, largely because of the evil and the wickedness he saw in war as a very young man. But he came to this understanding uh, of the struggle of, of evil in the world is even harder for those that don't have God in the equation than for those who did. And it turned him to help him become one of the great Christian apologists. And so the fullness of that argument 
If there's no God, then there's no such thing as horrifying wickedness. If we've evolved and it's we're all here by random chance and accident, then there's no place for genuine moral obligation. The strong eat the weak is completely natural. There's no such thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. And what happened is God used that in C.S. Lewis's life to begin to point him to his objection of being upset about evil in the world was precisely because we're made in God's image. Precisely because there is moral good. And so what was a powerful argument against God became a powerful argument for God that helped him come to faith. Now we could add from the Christian perspective of all that, if you have a God big enough to create and make all things, to hold all things together by the word of his power, then you have a God big enough to trust that he's working in ways that you can't understand. And so when you begin to take these all the way through, as it says here that Asaph did, I discern the end. It led him to seeing the glory of who God is and it deepened his faith. And so bring your doubts before God, trusting that he meets you in that. But then as you do, and we'll end here with this last part, that as you begin to seek him, as you begin to bring those things out into the light, as you begin to see the fullness of who God is and the way he's working it and the way he's wrestling with you and in you and through you in all this, the glory of the gospel shines more clearly. Look at verse 22 through 25 with me. Or 21, he says, go back to 21. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you and you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom and I, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And so he confesses and he says that God meets him in the middle of this. And he says, when you seek God and he's pursuing him and he's embittered and he's struggling and he gives birth to his doubts. But then what he finds is that God is faithful and that he is with him and he is loving him and he is walking with him and he is guiding him all the way through it. And it's such a beautiful picture of the gospel. Notice he says, I was embittered in verse 21. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you, but yet you are continually with me, holding my right hand, guiding me and showing me that you will receive me to glory. And you go, how does one go from being brutish and ignorant and a beast towards God to him receiving you in glory? And it goes back to the very gospel that we believe that it's all because of what Jesus has done and nothing else. You're not saved by not having any doubts. You're saved by the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. And when we see that and we wrestle with that and we come to grips with the glory of it's all what God has done, we can bring these things out into the open and into the light. And he meets us there and he loves us and he walks us through it and it magnifies the glory of his grace to us. So wherever you are today. Whatever you're struggling with, lay it before the Lord as the psalmist does. Let him walk you through that as you come into his sanctuary and you show him and you lay it before him and you seek him and he meets you in the midst of that. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you meet us in all things and that you love us through it.
We thank you that we can bring all these things before you, knowing that you save us by your grace, not our works. And I thank you for that. I pray that you would help us to continue to seek you in all things. And we pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.